This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. Dan Mahler. Dan is professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland, and he's the author of Governing Least, a New England Libertarianism, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2018, as well as the book that he's here to discuss today, which is titled The Way of Bach, Three Years with the Man, the Music, and the Piano. Dan, congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great. Well, Dan, you've written a memoir of your experience learning Bach that's just really rich with some personal history. You're thinking of music, this idea of of craftsmanship, the human experience, and you have a chapter on uh, titled God. Um, it's also a vignette of Bach himself that considers him a bit differently than, than some other biographical accounts. Um, we're eager to hear about the chapters in The Way of Bach, but before we do that, could you first tell us some about yourself and, and maybe what led to the writing of this book? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a philosophy professor, but I'm not a musician by training. I didn't go to conservatory or anything like that. And my family wasn't really a musical family. My parents can't hold a tune. No one in my immediate family played an instrument. And so the idea of learning to, to play an instrument was kind of foreign. In fact, even just, I don't know, classical music in general, you'd occasionally hear a record in the background somewhere in my house, but it wasn't really a, a, a living presence. But it's something I got very excited about as I got older, and I eventually ran into this uh, record of the, the Art of the Fugue by Glenn Gould on the organ, which in retrospect is sort of a bizarre, weird, one-off thing he did, and I don't even know why it was lying around our house. And I just got very excited about Bach, but it never occurred to me to play. And then as I got older and older, it just became this more and more persistent, uh, driving, nagging thought that I really must learn to play Bach. It would be some sort of colossal tragedy <laughs> to go through life and not learn to play him on the piano. And, you know, there was this sort of agonizing thoughts about, oh, am I really going to buy a piano? And uh, it didn't lessons wouldn't really have worked for me, as I explained in the book, for various reasons. And so I kind of agonized, but then eventually I decided I had to do it. And so the Bach, uh, the Bach. The book is a kind of chronicle of, um, of that experience of deciding, oh, I have to do this and what it was like learning as an adult, as a, as a non-musician and without a piano teacher. Sure. Well, we, you've kind of alluded to some of the themes of the book there, but if you could just in a, in a minute or two, what is this book about in a, in a nutshell? Well, it tries to interweave 
uh, two things. So one is the experience of learning to play Bach as an adult, which is not easy, especially if you're <laughs> not going to hire a teacher. So um, part of it's the frustrations and also the joys of just what it's like to learn to play an instrument and learn to play someone like Bach on the piano. And that that's interwoven with an account of Bach's music and Bach the person himself. And what's so interesting about Bach? What's what's so cool about his music? Why is it special and distinctive? I mean, we, those of us who are into classical music, you know, most of us do kind of appreciate Bach, but why is it distinctive? Why, why is it different from Beethoven or Mozart? What makes it so good? And so I try and explain that and a bit about his life and why I think he's maybe I should put it this way, uh, not the bore that he's usually written off as. He's sort of written off as this you know, church mouse no one knows that much about, but I, I kind of found him engaging and exciting when I read more about him. Sure. Well, um, as, as you mentioned, the books, it's not, it's not really a, a formal work on his life, um, but, but like you said, you're, you're trying to convey that, that experience of learning Bach as an adult um, so I guess as we as we dive into chapter one, you you've titled it "The Bug," uh, and you share uh, you share some of what led to those endeavors of, of learning to play play him. Um, the desire came over you something like a sickness, didn't it? Can you talk about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like I said, so this wasn't a plan that I'd had as a kid, or I wasn't you know reviving some expertise I'd acquired learning as a child or anything like that. Um, and it was more like a kind of feeling of desperation. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, this isn't really a book where I, you know, I'm not a professional Bach scholar just writing down a bunch of dry, dusty stuff about Bach. It's more a kind of memoir of what happens when you become really, really obsessed with something in a slightly unhealthy, <laughs> to other people's kind of bizarre sort of way. So I just found myself getting more and more obsessed with Bach and the idea that I had to play him on the piano. And I started having this feeling that it would just be this kind of terrible thing if I you know, got to the end of my life and I hadn't played Bach. It just felt like this kind of calling or destiny or something like that, which is sort of a slightly unusual experience, I guess, to have. You know, I, I wrote this when I was, you know, like uh, early 40s or something. So uh, it's sort of weird to develop this kind of, I don't know, dark obsession with something. Uh, but I, I did have this, this kind of experience where it was almost like a sickness and I would just wake up at night thinking, this is terrible. I just, <laughs> this can't happen. I can't just not do this. And yet, you know, it felt like kind of impossible. And I have, I had had these weird, um, you know, hand injuries that I struggle with. And so it all seemed awfully inconvenient and impractical. And what are you doing? And, you know, I'm an academic. I should be spending this time writing, you know, scholarly papers or something. What am I even doing here? Uh, but I, it did. It was one of those things where, you know, sometimes you just develop this weird obsession um, that you can you can perhaps only compare it to, I don't know, falling in love or something where you, you just develop this kind of, you know, intense preoccupation. So that was my experience with Bach. So you had this this intense preoccupation with him and and only a few months into your your practice, your training, uh, something happens that, that kind of throws you off. Uh, share a little bit about that. Uh, you know, why, why didn't you just kind of give up when, uh, when you, you had those injuries? Yeah. Um, so I tried to learn a little bit somewhat less enthusiastically, uh, at, at an earlier point when I was in, in graduate school and I'd started developing these problems and I sort of thought, oh, well, I guess it's not for me and it'll just kind of go away or you know, I'll focus on other things. You know, I have other little hobbies or something. 
Um, and then, you know, as I just described, <laughs> that turned out to be not the case. It was not okay to focus on other things. Yeah. And then when I did um, get serious and buy a piano and sort of, you know, drop a plan, I'm going to play Bach. Uh, yeah, these these problems, these kind of, as I, I guess they, they must be repetitive strain type injuries uh, recurred. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than being obsessed with something, trying to accomplish something, and then face these kind of external impediments. You know, you, you go to all this trouble, you drop a plan, you say, you know, I have the willpower, I'm going to do this. And then you have these, you know, absurd seeming impediments that get in the way and prevent you from realizing your goals. And it's kind of agonizing uh, to, to realize there's this barrier you have to try and overcome. Yeah, and part of what I do in the book is just try and describe my reaction to that and and how I think in general we should react to these things, which is, you know, um, pe people don't try as hard as they could and should, I think, when they face these kinds of barriers often. Uh, I'm struck by this as a teacher. It's often not obvious to people what trying really amounts to in a given context. Um, people often think they're trying when they're not really trying, you know, so I found myself you know, lying awake at night saying, have I really literally done everything I could to try to overcome this barrier? You know, like if I hired someone just to help me with this, I mean, just imagine I hired someone just to get me through this, this problem. Like, what would they tell me? And I started realizing, gosh, there's all kinds of stuff I could do. I could, you know, stop typing and use, you know, dictation software. I could, you know, do a careful analysis of, you know, posture and my work environment, blah, blah, blah. There's like all this stuff that I hadn't really focused on. And so, I kind of found the motivation to really, you know, analyze what's going wrong here and, and, and really start trying. You write that you began to study Bach on the piano because you wanted to participate in the greatness of it uh, to become <laughs> to become part of the music itself. And so as we as we turn to the music, um, you discuss what separated Bach in your mind from others. Uh, so so. Tell us, if you can, more about what you talk about in, in Chapter 2, titled The Music. Yeah, but but actually, that point you you just raised about participating in the music, I think that's interesting and important, too. There, there is something somewhat distinctive about music in this respect. So if you, if you really love literature, you know, you can read it, and you can, I don't know, become obsessed with Henry James or something and just start reading all those novels. But there's something distinctive about music and maybe one or two other arts, like, I, I don't know, uh, acting or dance or something, where you you can really become a a part of the thing itself, as in you are helping to realize the artist's vision. Um, and so there's this kind of weird sense in which you can feel that, you know, Bach is actually playing you. You are this kind of vehicle of his mind, of his music. And there's something kind of distinctive and, and exciting about that uh, in the case of music music unlike other things like, I don't know, literature or film or something. So yeah, that's part of the pull. And then, yeah, so what is it about Bach's music in particular that's so exciting? Um, part of it, and, and this is difficult to write about because it starts to sound boring almost immediately, but um, but part of it is is counterpoint, the concept of counterpoint, the concept that you have independent voices that are treated as individuals and that aren't kind of agglomerated, assimilated to a vertical chord structure that you just kind of hear as just this one, you know, at a time chord. Instead, you have these, you know, horizontal voices that are kind of have this, this individual personality, each of them, that you can kind of follow along with. And so part of what got me 
really obsessed with Bach was just this this dedication he had to this particular people call it a style, but I, I feel like style almost trivializes it. But uh, uh, this this approach to music of counterpoint that you know it's not like he's the only one who does counterpoint. Of course, that's not true, but. I, most most musicians would say, you know, he um, most fully realizes the ideal of counterpoint or something like that. So that was part of the draw, this idea of really highlighting the independence of these voices and interweaving them and sort of treating them almost like people. It, you you write about his ability to to accumulate those those layers of meaning. Um, you say he accumulated he accumulated layers of meaning that waited patiently to be uncovered. You said he had mm-hmm. a, a proclivity for obscurity. Uh, <laughs> can, can you talk about that? Some like what? What were some of the advantages of that of that obscurity? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I like to think that uh, Bach has this quality that perhaps man, many great artists do, where they offer you something at the surface. So if you just enjoy, if you're just there for you know to let it just kind of wash over you, it'll wash over you, and it'll feel good if you pick the right recording and so on. But if you want to go spelunking and you know dig deep, you can find all the super cool stuff. So the, the Goldberg variations are a pretty good example of that. Most people, if, if they just hear the the Goldberg aria and the variations, you know, most people like it. They they just think it sounds kind of nice. You know, the full hour, you know, <laughs> maybe tries some people's patience, but you know, most people hear the Goldberg aria and it just sounds kind of nice. Um, and you know, they hear the variations and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds kind of nice. But then if you just listen a bit more intently and you start asking yourself, okay what is being varied exactly? Like, what is the theme? If you if you just ask the casual listener, all right, you, you play them the iron, and they're like, that's nice, and the variation, and you ask them, okay, what was the theme? Like, what was the thing that was varied? It, it's actually hard. Um, he, he doesn't make it obvious. Uh, it, it's not like he, he couldn't have. Uh, you know, many themes and variations are structured in a way where you first hear the, you know, unadorned theme, and then, you know, you, you everyone gets it, and then it gets, you know, varied and so on. But in the Goldberg variations, it's much more subtle, and there are specific musical things he does where there'll be a, a sequence of notes that see, that then seems to continue in a certain way, but it's actually misleading because the supposed continuation is in the other hand and is actually a different line. And so there are all these kind of tricks to hide <laughs> the theme from you, in part for you know kind of good workmanlike compositional reasons. You don't want to kind of bore people over an hour by hammering home the theme over and over. But also, I think, in part, to sort of toy with the listener and, you know, not make it quite so easy and give you something to, you know, something new to listen for each time. And then in the variations, you know, the theme, it's there, but it's subtle and it's varied, uh, of course. And so, um, yeah, there are these kind of new depths to look for. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, near the end of the chapter, you you allude to a later chapter about your desire to learn more about Bach the Man, but... The reason I think you mentioned that here, at least in this chapter, is because of something else you notice in his music, and that's this combination of what you call humility and arrogance. Uh, 
can you tell us what did you mean? What did you mean by that? As, as you're thinking about his music? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting combination. And um, part of part of my obsession with Bach does derive from this fascination with this aspect of his personality that comes out, you know, when you when you first encounter a great artist, you just sort of, you know, you like the music or the literature or whatever it is, and you think it's kind of interesting, and you think it's, you know, they, they did a good job with this particular piece. But then as you listen more and more and more, you start to get a feel for the person and what they're really expressing. And there is this distinctive feature of Bach where his work both is humble and supremely arrogant. It's humble in, in a couple different ways. So one way in which it's humble is it doesn't have this kind of ego quality. Um, you know, when you listen to other great composers like Beethoven, <laughs> who comes in for a couple whacks in the book, obviously, you know, I admire Beethoven like everyone else. He's a great composer and so on. But, you know, when you hear the occasional coda that goes on, you know, a long time and has a lot of bangs and a lot of thumps and a lot of triple fortes, you know, to make sure you really get the point, you know, it has this slightly egotistical rock star kind of quality where you're sort of showboating and you're trying to, you know, show off your Titanic deep thoughts or something like that. You don't really get that in Bach, you know? It has this much more humble kind of craftsman-like quality where he's in love with his art. He wants to display what's so cool about his craft that he's worked so hard at, but he's not trying to like bang you over the head and show you what a rock star he is and how cool he is and like, you know, bang you over the head with a triple forte, you know? Did you really get the point? you get very little of that. You know, the, the climaxes are often very subtle. They're like clashing minor second notes or something where if, you, if you're listening carefully, you'll hear that sort of aching tension and you'll think, ah, that's what he's trying to get at. But it's often kind of subtle. It's at a smaller scale uh, than than later composers. So that's, that's one sense in which he's uh, humble. You know, his works are often, you know, they're sort of Many of his best ideas are for his students. They're they're for teaching lessons. He doesn't sort of hoard his good ideas for some, you know, titanic virtuoso piano concerto or anything like that. But there's also this kind of epic grandeur um, to the scale of many of his works, which contrasts with this humility. So he's writing, especially toward the middle and end of his life, these epic cycles. Um these incredible works that are hours uh, long, uh, even even you know solo instrument works that are hour plus long, which is very very unusual at this point. Remember, this is a point before the solo concerto had even been invented, and yet the Goldberg Variations is an hour or so. The you know Art of the Fugue can take forever to perform, and um, and so he's writing these kind of grandiose cycles that aim to explore the maximum of what his art can do. You know, the maximum of what you can do with counterpoint, the maximum of what you can do with the keyboard. And so he's he's sort of, you know, almost arrogant in the sense of he's trying to do things that are sort of almost absurd. Like, who do you think you are that you're going to, you know, write the art of the fugue as in this is all that you can accomplish with the fugue on a keyboard, uh, if that's what you're playing it on. And yet there's this kind of humility of spirit that I admire. So that, that contrast I find really fascinating. Sure. Well, you've you've begun to get sunk into the the nuances of of box music here, and then you turn to chapter three, uh, and here comes the struggle. Uh, what <laughs> what can readers expect from this chapter? Uh, so this is kind of the agony of actually trying to learn this stuff, and boy, it is tough. It is really really hard. Um, and so I try and discuss, you know, what is it that happens when you're trying to learn something really hard, like learning Bach on the 
know, on the keyboard as an adult. What is that like? What kind of obstacles do you need to confront? And, you know, uh, how do you make this work? So one thing that's distinctive is I, I didn't want... I didn't want a teacher for various for various reasons, but I did have this friend, Christopher, who sort of mentioned throughout the book, uh, who was classically trained. And so a lot of the experience was connecting with him and trying to, you know, um, draw on this friendship to kind of get strength from him and tips from him about how to break through barriers when you kind of get discouraged and things aren't going well. Um, I discuss a lot of this sort of self-deception <laughs> that... Uh, learning a craft involves trying to uh, break through. So you, you know, you think you're doing great and then you make a recording of your playing and send it to uh, my friend, Chris, you know, and he would just, you know, sadly shake his head and, you know, tell me, <laughs> kid, uh, you got a long way to go there and, you know, here's what you need to do. And, and so, yeah, a, a lot of it is, is just trying to relay what the experience of, you know, discouragement, self-deception, breaking through that, you know, learning to accept these sort of objective measures of reality, like even in some very literal sense, like the metronome, you know, sort of the voice of objective reality telling you <laughs> when you're failing and sort of looking for those objective measures from friends, um, from recordings, from the metronome and so on, and using them to, to sort of guide you forward in your, in your quest. Sure. Yeah, you mentioned Christopher and you had this really uh, funny phrase there uh, about him saying that uh, you felt this gradual absorption of Christopher into your super ego. Uh, <laughs> you said it, it was like it was creating a musical conscience for you. Um, yeah, and another phrase you, you used was uh, that that I wanted to ask you about was um, was was you said the the piano produces a sense of interiority. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, first of all, on Christopher, yeah. So. He did become sort of this musical Jiminy Cricket, you know, is kind of how I think of him. And part of what I find interesting there is, you know, so you're trying to learn something without a teacher. You know, what are teachers there for? Why are they important? What are they doing for you? How can you kind of disaggregate a teacher if you don't have a teacher? You know, find the things that they're important for and, and, and find those resources in other ways. So one of the most important things I think a teacher is for you is a kind of conscience. You know, you, you sort of absorb them into your psyche and they become a kind of conscience for you. So if you're, you know, new to college or something and you're a sloppy writer and then your teacher, you know, nags you and tells you, uh, 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 another run-on sentence here, tut, 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 you know, you start to absorb that. And, and then as you start writing, you, you can kind of hear them, you know, they're like perched on your shoulder looking, looking in a, at your essay, it's kind of, you know, and you, you hear them saying, uh, be more careful. And so similarly, yeah, I, I, would, I would sort of acquire this conscience from Christopher and, you know, I'm playing quickly, but playing quickly lets me sort of glide over my sloppy technique and I should slow it down and, you know, really make sure I'm getting it. So, um, yeah, I think that's an important function of a teacher. And it's, it's one that you can find in other places if you don't have a teacher, like, let's say, a, a friend. Yeah, on this point about interiority, yeah, I, I do find that interesting. So... If you're a little more introverted, one of the advantages of learning an instrument, I think, is that it can it can kind of help you cope. It can help you process and reflect on the rest of your life. Um, you come home at the it's really ended ended up being my pattern. you You start off the day at the piano before, in my case, you know, giving a big lecture in front of hundreds of people, which 
frankly, kind of freaks me out. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you sit there at the piano and you sort of process what's going to happen during the day and it helps you sort of, you know, meditate and prepare for it. And then you come home at the end of the day and sort of, you know, digest what's happened and so on. Um, and an instrument can really help you with that. It can help you sort of uh, make sense of what you've experienced um, and sort of help you figure out what you are anticipating and what's happened and, you know, um, not, not that it should be a substitute, of course, for, you know, talking to your friends and family and all that, but it can kind of help you with that was my experience. Well, one of the things you, you return to in this chapter are some reflections you have on, on your own teaching and being a, a professor at the University of Maryland. Um, part of the struggle at the piano, it, it caused you to consider uh, an ambivalence towards teaching, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. A, <laughs> so I am a teacher, but I have these ambivalent feelings about mm -hmm. teaching and, and students and teachers and so on, which in my field actually kind of goes all the way back because uh, Socrates uh, was a very ambivalent teacher as well. In fact, in the Apology, he sort of denies that he was a teacher. He said, ah, don't call me a teacher. I just kind of went around talking to whoever wanted to talk to me in the marketplace and I never charged money. And in fact, he, he shames people who would take money for teaching. He thought that was sort of, uh, you know, a kind of form of intellectual prostitution. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I in the university, you have this very weird setup. Um, you have this kind of industrial scale system where you have hundreds and hundreds of people in freshman lectures. And of course, many of them are wonderful, wonderful people whom I love teaching and get to know. And it's it's great. But there's also, you know, requirements. And so you get all these people who don't want to learn. And so you have the system where institutionally we've set it up so that you have people trying to teach stuff to students who fundamentally don't want to learn some of the things that they're being told to learn. You know, you're satisfying some requirement or something like that. And uh, that's just death to um, to the, ex the exchange of knowledge. It's, it's death to, to learning and it's death to teaching because, of course, it's demoralizing to teach stuff to people that they... They don't really want to learn. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when you're sort of sitting there at the piano and, and having this experience of, I have to know this, I have to learn this, uh, you start to, you know, keep an eye out for students who, who have that sort of, you know, zeal and you have the special sympathy for them. <laughs> you, you kind of learn to recognize, you can say, wow, they're really into this. They feel about this sort of kind of the way I feel about the piano and you feel a special uh, urge to help them and do whatever you can for them. Well, in the second half of the book, you start with this chapter, chapter four uh, on Bach, the man. So your your hand problems, they in, they inevitably return uh, through all your practice. And so you back off some and, and you're researching Bach. Um, how does some of his biographers get him wrong in your, in your view? Is, is he really that dull person living that simple life? Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the, a standard thing to say about Bach is... Well, first they tend to say, we don't know anything about him. You know, there's some musty old receipts. There's the occasional pointless bureaucratic letter, but really we don't know much any much of anything about him. And I, I just don't think that's that's really true at all. Um, I think at some point I make the comparison to your, to someone's browser history. Like suppose you, you know, 500 years in the future, there's some obscure person who 
you know, uh, there's no video of or pictures of, but you have his browser history. Would you say you didn't know much about that person? I mean, <laughs> in one sense, you'd know less about that person than about others who, you know, where there were, you know, video interviews or something. But in another sense, you'd know much more, right? You'd have all this documentation. You'd know, you know, what they were curious about and so on. And so with Bach, in some ways, I think you you do know a great deal. Um his letters that he would write to the bureaucracy are kind of astounding and uh, revealing, not always in flattering ways, but but in interesting ways. So uh, a consistent pattern is Bach getting into scraps with people around him, especially over questions of authority, like who gets to you know decide who's on the little boys choir or something. And then he, he'll just write these letters to the king of Poland whenever there's a disagreement or dispute. And he'll write these like incredible epic letters. They're like, I quote some of them. They're like seven pages long and like, you know, addenda and enclosures and then, you know, re replies and then replies to the replies and these sort of incredible letters that suggest this intense stubbornness <laughs> and sense of, um, you know, uh, that you have to kind of relentlessly pursue order and a kind of commitment to excellence and this deep frustration with, you know, the bureaucracy interfering with his commitment to excellence. Uh, and then you get these counter letters, you get these letters complaining about Bach, you know, you get people wailing about his, you know, annoying dissonant <laughs> performances in the church. Uh, you get people worrying that he's, you know, trying to turn the church into a, an opera house or something. Um, so you do get these incredible portraits. Other other kinds of things you get, you get receipts. And uh, I find the receipts really moving. <laughs> you know, you like get these receipts about how much brandy he's drinking and how much tobacco he's smoking. Uh, so you get the sense of what he's spending money on. Um, you have these records of what was left when he died. And those include, for example, his library. So you know that he had 80 plus books of theology, which is kind of noteworthy and interesting. Um, you know that his household was deeply invested in coffee, which I find moving. There are these letters of where he's trying to get um, uh, things for his, for his wife, flowers and stuff like that. So I find that all very moving. Uh, and then there are these very dramatic moments in his life that, uh, I don't know, people never tell you about. He, he seems to have gotten into sort of almost knife fights with other people at various points. There's this kind of dramatic incident where he's trying to get hired in Hamburg and does these sort of, you know, super high stakes, you know, bravura performances and then gets screwed out of the job because the other person pays off the, you know, this official or that official. And you get these like committee minutes from the officials in the meeting, which I find incredibly comical because it's so bureaucratic <laughs> and yet it's recording something that's kind of dramatic and, and fascinating. So there, there are all kinds of interesting little bits that you can uh, take from his life if you're, if you're interested. Well, he, he, he had some difficulties in life, but you talk about these, these islands of joy too. Um, some, there were some bright spots in his life too about, you know, a beehive of, of visiting musicians mm. that would come and, and, and visit him. Uh, even a student uh, marrying his daughter. He has this wide mm -hmm. musical network, um, things like that. Um, one of the other themes that, that you draw out in this chapter um, on Bach's life is his genius, or maybe the term, the term you suggest is craftsmanship, isn't it? Um, can you tell us some about that? Yeah, I find this very interesting. So, 
Americans are obsessed with genius. People are forever talking about genius. If you go on Amazon, you know, there's a bazillion books on genius and where is it and who's a genius and how much of a genius are they, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I find genius kind of overrated and, and sort of annoying, to be honest. And with Bach, although, you know, obviously he's in some sense a musical genius, um, it's craftsmanship that seems much more to the point. And when you're thinking about his music, craftsmanship is, is, is the key lens through which to see it, I think. And I think that's helpful. You know, when you're sitting there at the piano trying to learn, you know, it's, it's sort of unhelpful to be told, well, you know, so-and-so is just this transcendent genius and either you got it or you don't or something. When you think of it as, you know, a huge amount of it is just hard work. Um, not that he didn't have this transcendent talent. Of course he did. And, you know, you're, you're not going to have his talent. But when you think about how much work he put into it and how he emphasized that and this idea that you are taking up a craft, you're entering a kind of guild, you know, like the Bach Guild. And you're trying to sort of, you know, master your, your tools, you know, the, the, your technique at the keyboard is sort of your tool set the way someone else would have, you know, uh, tools to join the Stonemasons Guild or something. Uh, that, that gives it sort of a different flavor. Um, it becomes more accessible. It becomes more something kind of, uh, you know, you, you feel perhaps, you know, with a couple years of, of hard work, you could kind of get there and, and play this competently. Um, and... I think when you when you see Bach's own music through this lens, it starts to feel a little bit differently. I, I mentioned this this point about humility earlier. I think part of that is connected to this sense of craftsmanship. He, he's not there to show you what an amazing, towering colossus he is on the intellectual landscape. He, he's there because he loves his craft and he's trying to demonstrate for you just how beautiful and wonderful his craft is. You know. There are these stories with his students where he would play the well-tempered clavier, which is not a short piece, and he would play it through twice uh, in front of his student. You know, when you, you get the picture that his student was kind of, you know, <laughs> mucking about and Bach was sick of it. And he's like, ah, just get over here. I'll just play the well-tempered clavier. At least you'll, you know, some of that will rub off on you. And he would just like play through it. And you just have this picture when you're listening to Bach of him just kind of looking up at you and smiling and being like, you know, like, see, see, isn't it, isn't it cool? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I love that lens through, uh, for, for thinking about Bach's music. Uh, think of him as more of a craftsman and not just some, you know, transcendent genius. Right. Well, as we turn to the final two chapters, uh, we see in chapter five, uh, it's titled The Piano. Uh, you're examining what what it is right before you, and and you say it's no longer a piano, but it's a Venus flytrap. Uh, <laughs> why do you, why do you call it this? Um, yeah, if you develop this kind of deep obsession, you know, you start thinking of it as a craft, and you start you know lying awake at night thinking, ah, I gotta learn this stuff, I gotta master this craft, you know. Um, you know, it kind of sucks you in and that's, you know, mostly good, but it's also slightly odd. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I record a lot of losing a lot of pots to my piano as in, you know, oh, I'm boiling some water for pasta. Oh, I'll just go practice a couple bars. And then, you know, <laughs> an hour later, my melted pot is, you know, uh, burning down the apartment. Um, so th there's a lot of that kind of thing. And you, you can seem kind of odd to other people, which is, I, I think, kind of interesting. You know, th there's something slightly eccentric about developing this obsession with some craft a little bit later in life that's not really, you know, it's not going to earn you money or anything like that. It's not like you learned as a kid or you're, or you're particularly great at it, right? You're not going to be great at Bach if you're, you know, learning as a, as a 40 year old. Um, but, but yeah, you, you shouldn't be ashamed of these things. <laughs> uh, you know, 
don't mind if they think you're slightly eccentric and you lose lose a couple of pots. But yeah, uh, I, I did start to think of the the piano as a bit of a flytrap. It kind of sucks you in, and uh, you know, it starts to make everything else seem slightly less important. You just sit there in these meetings and at work or whatnot, and you just think, eh, who even cares? Let's just get home and practice Bach. So. Uh, in, in, in some ways, that can be bad if you lose all your pots, but it can also be good because it puts other things in perspective. When you talk about actually taking apart your your piano and you know to <laughs> learn learn how it operates, uh, I want to ask what what motivated this project and and <laughs> and uh, you know what what did you come away what did you come away with from it? Um, you, I mean, you you talk about um, uh, this desire to, to be a hybrid between man and, and machine, you know, and, uh, and I'm wondering if you're, if you're trying to get across like a sense of kind of intimacy with, with your piano that, that you're, you're, you're working on. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, part of it, uh, I think I was watching, uh, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica reruns, and there's this figure there called the hybrid, whom I was actually specifically uh, thinking of, where it's this sort of humanoid figure who interfaces with the spaceship. And <laughs> when I was sitting at the piano, I started thinking, oh, it's like not a bad image for um, how you start to feel playing at the piano after a while. Um, yeah, so the hybrid with the machine thing, I, I do find that sort of interesting. So you have this machine, and you need this machine to realize this craft, this art, Bach's music. It doesn't work without the machine. But then interposed between Bach's music and the machine is you, <laughs> this uh, imperfect, you know, mushy, lumpy <laughs> uh, pile of, you know, bone and sinew. And so it's kind of this interesting thing because it gets you to really reflect on your, you know, the very fact that you are this organic thing with all these, you know, flaws and limitations. And you start to, in some ways, sort of aspire to be sort of more machine-like. And with Bach, I think that actually even makes artistic sense. Um, performances of Bach that are too organic, that are too kind of, you know, mushy, sinewy, touchy-feely, that, that's not really right. It should have a certain kind of, you know, rigid, slightly mechanical quality in my view. Um, you know, I, I don't like the harpsichord, but if you think of a lot of this music as being written with the harpsichord in mind, that gives you more the, the sense of how you should approach this. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting. You're sitting down there in front of the machine and certain ways you're aspiring to be a little more machine-like and you're frustrated with all your little injuries that uh, prevent that from happening. So that's kind of an interesting an interesting experience you have. Um, yeah, and taking apart the piano. <laughs> uh, I've lost an embarrassing number of things into my piano. So there's like, um, <laughs> like pens and, and just all, all kinds of things have disappeared in there. Um, and so at some point I, I just thought, yeah, I'll just kind of pull out the, uh, the keyboard here and just sort of look at the mechanism and so on, take a look at the action and so on. And yeah, I spent some time discussing that in the book, which is actually, I think, kind of surprisingly interesting. It's, it's interesting if you reflect on, uh, what you need to do to just make the action mechanism work. And, uh, if you trace back the history of that a little bit, you know, the, the work and again, the craftsmanship that went into this kind of ingenious system for letting you press down a key so that it'll make a sound, but then the hammer doesn't, of course, stay against the string. It has to release, and yet it has to. You have to be able to strike it again immediately. And there's so much interesting genius that went into designing that mechanism. I, I describe a little bit of that. Yeah. Well, you come to the next chapter, and you've now completed the fugue in C minor. And now you begin to reflect on following the way of Bach. Um, 
tell us what you're trying to explore in this final chapter, which you title God. Yeah. Um, so Bach, of course, was religious. And as I discussed there a little bit, you know, this wasn't just a sort of pro forma thing where he was trying to please his, his church authorities. It seems pretty clear to me at any rate that, you know, he was very serious about his um, his Christianity. And one, one thing about his music, I, I mentioned earlier that it often has this epic, grandiose quality. And some of his music, like the St. Matthew Passion, which I spend a lot of time discussing in that chapter, kind of gets at that. It gets at Bach's view of the meaning of life, and it can be kind of usefully compared to other epic art pieces that try and lay out a vision for what life is all about, what it all means, like... Uh, you know, in Wagner, um, take your pick, but, uh, you know, the, the ring cycle, for example. Um, and so you can usefully think about something like the St. Matthew Passion as laying out a kind of vision of what life is all about, which for Bach was Christianity. Um, and I do have this Christian background, and I did find that sort of reviving playing Bach, and I described some, you know, slightly comical <laughs> attempts to go to go to church, which um, did, didn't always work great, but... Um, yeah, so I, I sympathize with that aspect of Bach's life. I, I find it sort of amusing when you read biographers, they usually just kind of brush it under the rug immediately, or or some some people like Albert Schweitzer just deny it altogether and say, you know, art was his real religion or something, which is, I find, bizarre. So yeah, there I'm trying to kind of look at these these um, these kind of grander themes that emerge in his music, like the like the St. Matthew Passion. Yeah, I think you make you make several and really insightful propositions there in the final pages um, about about Bach, but about music in general. And you can talk about how music uh, gets at what we are at, at the deepest level. Um, can you share some about some of those conclusions you, you came to through, through this project? Yeah. So what is it that is special about music? How does it suck us in, in some ways, I think, more deeply than other arts like literature? Uh, and I discuss various philosophical traditions that try and get at this. So there's a very, very old Pythagorean tradition. So Pythagoras of, of Pythagorean theorem fame, um, he or his group at any rate, they also discovered the mathematics behind uh, harmony and you know intervals and so on. And they thought of music as relating to the cosmos. It's sort of, you're, you're sort of in music, in harmony, you're getting at the uh, sort of, the, the mathematical order behind the cosmos and stuff like that. And I, a lot of that seems kind of exaggerated and, and silly to me, but I do think there is something to this idea that music gets at something deep the other arts don't. And in particular, I think it has this way of getting at, uh, it forms a sort of direct connection with our emotional evaluative systems. So we have these evaluative systems that kind of continuously, not just, you know, once or twice when you're deliberating, but just continuously are kind of telling you autonomously whether something's going well or badly, right? So this is like, you open the email and, oh, you're hearing from your friend and, oh, things are going well. And then, oh, you got a parking ticket and, you know, things are going down. You have this kind of affective emotional system that's continuously telling you about the world and how things are going. And part of what I try and explore there is whether music might not be seen as kind of jacking into that system. And, you know, when you think about major and minor and stuff like that, maybe one way of looking at it is thinking of music as jacking into that. And, you know, the other arts like literature, which I love, um, they don't really jack into that system so directly. You know, you have to first kind of 
you know, I, you have to like knock at the front door and go through border controls and like show your passports and like, you know, go, go through this rigmarole of telling a long story and, you know, populating it with characters and so on. Whereas with music, you know, you just like play one chord and you can kind of immediately, instantly, you know, jack into that system. And I think that's part of what makes music so powerful for us. Well, I, I, I thought this was just a, a fascinating read. It, it really was refreshing to read. Some of the comments you make there at the end, um, I thought brought a, a bit of release to some of the tension that it, that it built in the memoir uh, during kind of an obsessive project where you say, <laughs> you know, never did you feel closer or further away from Bach uh, than looking at his own hand. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting facet of of, of Bach that um, hadn't really occurred to me. Um, but at some point, it, it suddenly did strike me. Wait a minute, can I actually see this stuff written down? So you know, you're you're playing at the piano, and you're of course just playing your you know your normal edition of Bach. And uh, one thing we haven't really mentioned is that a lot of the book is structured in terms of one particular piece. So although I love Bach in general, this one piece, this fugue in C minor from the first book of the Well Tempered Clavier, was sort of the you know, white whale that I've always been obsessed with and chasing since I was whatever, 17 or something. Uh, and so p- part of what I'm chronicling is just that one piece and, and, and learning that. And so, yeah, what I, I did one day, it did just occur to me, wait, is there a, f- is there actually an autograph manuscript for this, which there isn't for everything Bach has, you know, some of his music, we, we know the music, but we don't have his handwritten version or anything like that. But in this case we do, um, so we have a fair copy, and so you can see him writing this out, and it has his his handwriting. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. It just sort of changed my, in some ways, it, it it yet again changed my my feelings about Bach. The way he just writes the music, it has this kind of bamboo like quality. It's sort of you know very firm and rigid, but also kind of graceful and kind of swooping. Um, and yeah, I found that very interesting. It, it sort of changed a little bit how I thought Bach should sound. So when I would go back to my recordings, <laughs> some of them felt a little wrong because they didn't quite look the way Bach's hand did. Uh, and I'll, I'll add one more. If, you're, if you get really interested in Bach, um, you know, buying a facsimile of that well-tempered clavier thing, that's a little pricey. You can just look that up on the web or something. But uh, the, the little notebook that his family wrote to practice, like the Bachs together in the, in the you know living room. Practice all all the little kitty Bachs and you know Mama Bach, Anna Magdalena learning to play music. Uh, they had a kind of family notebook where they would write down their music and practice it. Uh, Anna Magdalena's notebook from 1725, and that you can actually buy reasonably affordably. It's not that long, so you can find a facsimile of this book. And it's not all Bach's handwriting, of course. Most of it's the kids or, or hers, but it's very moving. I found that intensely moving to just look at the actual physical representation of this music by the Bach family and just sort of look at it and try and play along a little bit. Well, you've written the book now, and so. Re- reflecting back on it now it seems like there was some some bit of growth at least in 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 your understanding of um the teacher student relationship and that kind of came up and up and down throughout the chapters um or at least the ideal student uh, teacher relationship as you're reflecting back on the book has has writing it informed uh your work as as a professor yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I like to think that it has. Um, so I 
I try to find people who really want to learn and focus as much of my attention as I can on them. Not that I neglect anyone, of course, but I often ask myself this question, who here wants to learn this stuff? And there's not that much I can do uh, for people who don't want to learn. And so I, I try and apportion my attention a little bit more toward people who seem like they, they want to learn while, of course, you know, treating everyone fairly and so on. Um, I think of a lot of the value in teaching as being a form of friendship and coaching, something soft uh, and mushy like that, as opposed to, you know, just delivering information or something that's not really the important thing. So I often think, what can I do to coach students more? Uh, as an institutional teacher, I don't literally want to be friends with my students. That wouldn't be a good idea. But, you know, to f fulfill some of the functions that, that friends do, to encourage them, to coach them, to help them sort of identify where they're letting themselves down and need to overcome barriers or something like that. I often think of those as things that I want to try and pursue as a teacher. That's great. Well, Dan, we've taken up some of, some of your time now discussing the book. Um, it was such a refreshing read. Uh, but before we wrap up, um, can you tell us some about maybe what you're working on now and, and what readers might expect from you next? Well, uh, I'll, I'll answer in two ways. So in terms of what I'm working on now, I'm definitely working on Bach. Uh, <laughs> okay. I definitely didn't stop. So uh, yeah, I am hard at work on, uh, you know, bits of the partitas and bits of the, uh, bits of the well-tempered clavier that I'm uh, obsessed with. So uh, definitely much more Bach. Um, I'm definitely interested in writing different stuff. So the, you mentioned this, uh, this book about political philosophy that I'd written before to that. That was kind right. of a straightforward academic book. Uh, Hey, if you're interested in political philosophy, uh, go crazy. Um, but it is, you know, written for our, you know, sort of standard academic language. Whereas this is more of a memoir. It's a kind of casual, fun, you know, what was it like, and sort of a little more literary. So I'm hoping to pursue that a little more. I'm hoping to pursue that uh, side of writing a little more and do something perhaps a little more literary, um, something that sort of engages the writing part of writing a book like this, and not just sort of. Uh, the academic scholastic stuff, but the exact, exact form that'll take, I'm still kind of mulling over. Sure. Well, that sounds like exciting work nonetheless, but for now, thank you for writing this book, The Way of Bach. It was published by Pegasus Books just in 2020. And Dan, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks, Zach. It was fun to talk. All right. And thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I'll see you again next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you.